Please be seated. Well, our sermon series on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we are proceeding on with the Seventh Commandment with more on that. We began with a general overview of this commandment, and then we saw that those who know the Lord and have been redeemed by Him, that we're to, we've seen all along, that we're to look at all of God's commandments, not in a wooden or merely external way, but we're to look at them as given by God so that they speak right to the heart. They, they penetrate more deeply than just the, the externals, our thoughts, our words, and our actions are all in view when we hear one of God's commandments. It's not just the actions. Let's take a look then at these three questions from the Catechism that have to do with the Seventh Commandment and confess the answers to these questions in unison as a congregation. Question 70, which is the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, before we confess questions 71 and 72, I want to do as I did last week and remind you what chastity is, since both of these questions use that word, and a lot of people are not familiar with that term very much these days. Uh, A person is chaste when they are sexually pure, meaning that they use sex in the beautiful way that God has appointed that it is to be used as a pleasant expression of intimacy reserved exclusively for a husband and wife to enjoy in their marriage. If we truly, as I use the illustration about pollution with chastity, we have polluted sexual sex if we're doing things that are contrary to God's calling about sex and marriage. And it's like someone that says that, that they love lakes, but then they don't care whether the lake is polluted. If you really love lakes and you want it to be pure, you don't want it to be filled with all kinds of um, noxious chemicals and, and things like that. So people will say they love something, but if they don't love it to be pure, then they don't really love that thing. So we need to consider that. So when the pleasure of sex is pursued outside of marriage, then it's unchaste or the behavior is unchaste. So let's look at these two questions that use that terminology. Question 71, what is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. In question 72, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. So last week, we focused on the importance of preserving our own and our neighbor's chastity by avoiding anything that would attack marriage, would be corrosive to marriage, would separate what God has joined together in marriage, is to use the words of Jesus. The husband and wife that he has joined together as one. I showed you how everything that you do if married either weakens the bond that you have with your spouse or strengthens it, everything you do in that relationship. We looked at how divorce, which is the final separation of what God has joined together in marriage, should not be tolerated between Christians. Churches are responsible to call those who want to, rep- want to divorce to repentance if 
there are no legitimate grounds. And the elders must remove those from the church who refuse to repent. Again, when there's no legitimate grounds, no biblical warrant for a divorce. We all have a part to play in this as we are parts of the body of Christ. I can't go into the details now, but you can listen to the sermon from last week if you want to hear more about about that particular subject. We need to move on to today's subject. And today, I want to preach to you about one of the greatest plagues on our society, what I'm going to call soul-shrinking lust. When sex is longed for, and even worse, engaged in outside of marriage, it shrivels up your soul. Sex is meant to be a very social, interpersonal activity in which you are to love another person as a person, as another person. Not the way that you love a car or something like that, but the way that you love a person. Now, do you know what I mean by that? I mean, we're all, we're all quite self-centered as if we think that nobody else is quite as truly real or as human, you might say, as we are. We tend to trample other people, to disregard them, to not look at them as real entities almost. We, we are selfish because we're fallen. And with marriage... I think that you'll understand what I mean. We come to realize that our spouse really does have their own feelings and their own dreams and their own desires and likes and dislikes, just like we do. And I know it sounds, of course, it's obvious. We know that people have that. But you come to the realization of that, to a more of a reality. You know how it is when Something bad happens to you, for example. Maybe you, you find out that you're diagnosed with cancer or something like that. And if you're honest about it, it always seems like more of a real thing when it's you that has that diagnosis. It's worse somehow. The other person is like, oh yeah, you know, well, you know, they can, it's not that they can handle it or whatever. That, that's how, it, it's kind of harsh to say, but that's the way we think, isn't it? It's not, it's not as big a deal if it's someone else. They're not quite so real, not quite so human as you are. You know that's true, but uh, you, you, you know it's not true, of course, that it's different for them, but that's, that's the way we, it seems to us in our selfishness. But when you're married in a committed covenant relationship for life, you have to go through life in close connection with another person. If you're going to be faithful in your marriage, of course, you can distance yourself and not really be faithful in what marriage is supposed to be. But the other person you find is real, and you, you, know, you have to work around things or you, you bump into each other. They, they have real struggles, real sorrows, as well as real desires and real joys, and you have to learn how to interact with another real human being and to live in connection with them just as you live around your own likes or dislikes. You avoid certain things, and now you've got someone else for their sake that you're living unto. But those who take sex outside of marriage, they begin to pursue another person without the commitment that God calls for in marriage. Not that they may not have various levels of lesser commitment than what God calls for. They may have some commitment, even maybe fairly high commitment compared to others. 
but it is not the level that God appointed for marriage, and it cheapens sexual relations whenever that is done. And the more it is removed from marriage, the further it is moved from marriage, then the less social it is. And the more it becomes just a physical stimulation rather than personal engagement and interaction with another human being. It is indeed physically stimulating and exhilarating. Sometimes that even becomes a major focus. In fact, people can become obsessed with gaining maximum physical pleasure. Often it can deteriorate to the point where sexual partners are little more than objects for pleasure rather than fellow human beings that we cherish. So today I want to show you an example of a man in Scripture who fully illustrates this perverted love of another person as, a lo- as an object, loving them as an object rather than as a real human being. In the account of Amnon, one of David's many sons in 2 Samuel 13, we're going to see this. I'll read from 2 Samuel 13, verse 1 to verse 22. So please give attention to the Word of God. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. This is the Word of God. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you the king's son becoming thinner day by day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Ammon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, and he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, 
be gone. So she said to him, no, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, here, put this woman away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on her robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? And, but, but now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But king, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. It's very sad to see the depths to which Amnon, a son of King David, has fallen. He was very privileged to be born into God's covenant people, though indeed to a father who foolishly was a polygamist. But he exemplifies a man, Amnon exemplifies a man who is, whose soul is so shriveled away that he has no regard for anyone but himself. He has been trafficking in feeding his soul's lusts for so long that other people's thoughts are very small in his eyes. His own lusts are very large to him. His soul has shrunk up into a, 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 little, a little tight wad of selfishness, and he is alone in a world with other people who are mere shadows that he wants to manipulate and use for his own interests. This is especially a disturbing example for us because it illustrates what is so often found in our own society and all too often the church in our land. Not too long ago, we heard the wretched reports of even one like Ravi Zacharias that had committed sins. And it's obvious from the account of Amnon here, you see Amnon sees Tamar as existing for, to give him sexual pleasure. That's what she's for. But what, oh, but we're told that he loved her, aren't we? Yeah, he loved her so much that he became ill when, and, and was not even eating when he couldn't have her. So, so that dear friend Jonadab came as a counselor to him. He became concerned about him when he saw how thin he was getting. Amnon's love was a powerful force in his life. But what was this love? Did he love her? Did he, it, it was a kind of love, but was it a love for another human being? No, I mean, she was a human being, but Amnon did not love her as a real person. He loved her the same way you might love a steak dinner or a good movie or maybe a car that that you want to purchase or something like that. He loved her as an object that had potential to give him pleasure. He loved her because she was very beautiful and he thought if only he could have her, he would find deep satisfaction beyond all of his dreams. Yes, it was a very strong love, the kind of love that it was. She was the object of his desire, to be sure. 
He thought of her day and night. He couldn't get her off his shriveled up mind. He would do anything to have her. But as far as actually loving and caring for her, he did not. This is actually so very disgusting, and yet it's so very common. He had invested so much time, again, lusting after her, he couldn't even eat. His whole self-absorbed life could think of nothing else. It's very obvious that he did not care about her as a person. He wanted to, her to be like a car, something that he could drive whenever he wanted to and that he could set aside whenever he didn't want to. He could do just what he wanted with her. It would never talk back to him, and when he pushed the gas, you know, it would go. When he pushed the brakes, it would stop. It would not require a lot of attention, and only when he wanted to give attention would it, would it be given attention. He didn't really know her at all or care about her or her, her desires, her interests, her, her feelings. He just thought that she was there for him, to please, bring pleasure to him, to give him pleasure. This is what men pay prostitutes to be for them. They just show up with no obligation but a little bit of money to give you pleasure. That, that's all they are there for. This wretched attitude is evident from the way that Amnon treats Tamar. He takes the terrible advice of Jonadab, this crafty man, what a friend Jonadab was. If he'd been a real friend, he would have smacked this guy upside the head and told him to smarten up and, and get a life. But he, he would have told him to start serving others and quit thinking only about himself the way he had been. He would have told him to repent and ask God to have mercy on him. But instead, he essentially says, hey, you're the king's son. You can have whatever you want. It's the way that pagan kings are, right? I'm the king. So I can get what I want. It doesn't matter about anybody else. I just satisfy my own desire. That fed right into Amnon the way that, uh, you know, partly because of the way he'd been brought up with his father's negligence in the way of, of, of slapping him in the head when he needed it. We, we're told that his father David was, was a man that instead of dealing with his sons, that he, would, he, he wouldn't deal with them. That he, we're told of one of his sons that he had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so when he had done something wrong? Didn't even ask him. You can see that in 1 Kings 1.6. David was not a godly father. He was a godly man, but he was not a godly father. In any case, as soon as Amnon hears Jonadab say this, he's in full agreement. What a great plan, he thinks. This is a great plan to do this with Tamar. So Amnon pretends to be sick, and he asks David, his father, to send Tamar, his half-sister, to come and make a couple of cakes for him in his sight, that he may eat from her hand, all this stuff. Now, if David had not had so many wives, he might have recognized what a creepy request this was. He would have noticed how how Amnon had been eyeing his sister, and he would have known of the the boy's uh, struggles. And he would think, why does he want her to cook in front of him and to eat from her hand? Something is twisted here. You know, what's going on with that? But David was completely out of touch, and he falls right in with Amnon's plan and sends Tamar, a young woman who probably played with Amnon when they were growing up as children and never dreamed that he was looking at her the way he was. 
She certainly appears to be shocked when he grabs her and commands her to lie with him. It's not at all what she expected. Now, though, it becomes ultra clear to us that Amnon has absolutely no regard for her as anything more than an object to satisfy his lust and desire. He finds out that he finds out, though, that she is actually a person and one who cares about serving God and one who does not want to lie with this creepy brother. She actually has his own. She actually has her own feelings and principles, and she accuses him of being an idiot instead of being all excited about him the way that 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 he was hoping she would be. She says, 2 Samuel 13, 12, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, and I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me. And I don't think that, um, I'm sorry, he will not withhold me from you. Uh, probably that last comment was a desperate attempt to stop him because I don't think David would have probably approved of an incestuous relationship like this. But whatever the case, Amnon has run up against another human being, another person. And she has her own will and her own desires, and he can't make her think the way that he wants her to think. He's stronger than she is, so he can force her physically but she's not going to be there for him. And she is not going to be there as one infatuated with him the way he had dreamed about for all those days that he had been lusting after her. So now his great love is turned into hatred. In a way, it wasn't really changed because he always hated her. Verse 15 says, Then Ammon hated her exceedingly so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. You can see how much he really cared about her from this. Now he tries to drive her away from his presence, and she dares to contradict him again. Verse 15. And Amnon, it continues, verse 15 continues. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. And she, so she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Poor Tamar, this beautiful young woman, tears her clothing and her her clothing that, that showed the clothing that showed that she was one of David's virgin daughters and goes into mourning. Her brother Absalom learns about it and tries to comfort her. David learns about it and is angry, but does nothing. In the end, Absalom kills this wretched stepbrother and rebels against his father David and tries to usurp the throne. But the point is that Amnon had no regard for Tamar as a person. His sexual passions were completely misplaced. And of course, there's a a much bigger problem here than the way Amnon treated Tamar. And that is the way that he looked at God. He had no fear of God. Really, when you have a fear of God, you have a sense of the reality of God, the real judgment of God, the real presence of God, the real help of God, that God is real, that he's a true judge. God does not give a woman to a man in the way that Amnon took her. 
God does not give us sex as merely a pleasant thing for us to indulge in as we see fit in our own selfish way. Even if Tamar had consented to Amnon, it would still have been a great transgression for him to have her when she was his half-sister and when he was not married to her. Whenever sex is engaged in without marriage, even as a solo act, it is an evidence of a person setting themselves up in authority over God. Just as we saw previously in the sixth commandment about murder, we do not have a right to take our own life because we belong to God. We do not have the right to do what we want with our bodies the way the world teaches us because the world has no fear of God. They don't acknowledge God has authority over us and our bodies. Our bodies belong to God as our creator and all the more they belong to him when we are redeemed. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 after being told that the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord. Verse 19 goes on to ask, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God with your body or in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Not yours, but God's. God has authority over what we do sexually. Sex is his gift and he desires and he declares that he will judge fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals, as well as those who commit incest. Because we have no right to take God's gift and use it for our own pleasure in any place except the marriage bed, God says he will judge that when we misuse his gifts. But you see, talk about attacking your own soul. That's what it talks about here in in 1 Corinthians 6. Taking sexual relations outside marriage shrivels up your soul so that you are self-centered and treat other people like objects. Do this to various degrees. But even worse, it sets you in opposition to God Almighty. It burns away your relationship with God and your awe of God, and it destroys your communion with God. It dries up your soul and turns in, and, and turns you in on yourself so that God is no longer in your thoughts. You're self-absorbed. It is not just other people then that disappear as persons in the black hole of your selfishness, but God himself disappears into your black hole. You become isolated from your creator. Granted, in this fallen world, that is the state that most people are in. So we hardly even notice it. We don't think of it as that big of a deal. But it's a dreadful condition to not fear God, to not have a real sense of the living God who is our creator and our judge. And we need to grasp that, the dreadfulness of that condition. A shriveled up soul, a society like ours that has lost the fear of God is a ruined society. It can live day after day in sexual immorality without repentance. If you can do that, you simply do not have a relationship with God. You are shriveled up with respect to God and with respect to other people. Consider how opposite that self-absorbed, nobody but me really matters way of life is 
compared to what God calls us to in Jesus Christ. Sexual relations are meant positively to bring a husband and wife closer to each other. But when sex is abused, it isolates and drives people apart. It destroys lives. You have, for example, children that have been abused, who are treated like objects. It drives people apart. It destroys relationships. You have women like Tamar, treated like an object to satisfy a man. It drives people apart. You have those women who consent to this, maybe for attention, for pleasure, for status, for money, as a desperate effort to combat loneliness, to control someone or something, whatever it is. You have women that consent to it, and they also are isolated more and more by this by this is all, but, but this is all so very distorted and twisted from what God wants. What God wants is a loving bond and loving expression of persons who are truly committed to each other as persons, who regard one another and love one another for life. What sorrows come when sex is abused? What heartbreak? I mean, just think of all the heartbreak. What resentments, what jealousies, what isolation, what emptiness. Yes, there is some pleasure in the thing itself, but when it's abused, there is a terrible erosion of the soul that occurs. But still, it never seems to satisfy. And instead of drawing you closer to another person, it isolates you more and more. Secondly, sexual relations were meant to be fruitful. They were meant to bring us together with people, and they were meant to be fruitful. When you engage in them in a way that God designed, you cultivate the fruit of love in your life. You learn to regard your spouse, truly care for them, to have them to be important to you as another person. And you also produce the fruit of godly children. God designed this relationship in part for this purpose, So you develop the fruit of love and that sort of fruit in your life, and you also develop, or you also bring forth children, potentially. But when you're selfish, of course, children are an unwanted byproduct. Nothing shows the disregard for another human being more in our society than the callous way that women will terminate life, the life of their sons and daughters in their womb. God wants the earth filled with worshipers but sexual immorality fills the earth with little corpses. And, and when they're not terminated and turned to corpses, they grow up without parents that are, that are really committed to each other and that demonstrate what love is supposed to look like as, as individuals who themselves are often isolated in this way of meaningful relationship. Thirdly, sexual relations are meant to produce thanksgiving to God. It is indeed a wonderful gift that God has given to us, sexual relations. But when we take sex outside of where God has given it to us, outside of marriage, we're stealing it. And we're not receiving it from God's hand, but we're taking something that God has not given us. And when you steal from God, you don't give thanks for it. If you steal something from someone, you don't go and thank them for for whatever it is that you got from them. It drives you away from God, you see, instead of nearer to God. It causes you to avoid God. When you've stolen something, you avoid the person you stole from. You resent God for, 
for not giving it to you and you look at him as a hard master to justify that you took what was not yours. How can God ask me to do that? Is your kind of attitude. And there, there certainly is no thanks given in that kind of a situation because you're feeling so entitled that you even went so far as to take what he had prohibited. And when there is no thanks, it makes you dissatisfied with what you are given or what you've taken, as the case may be. It never satisfies you. Just the way people are with drugs or alcohol or ill-gotten wealth. They're never satisfied. So they're always craving a greater experience, more pleasure, more sensation. They are never able to simply enjoy what they have been given by God. We could illustrate the same principle with kids. You know, one kid is in a room with, of wonderful toys and he has a scowl on his face. He is completely dissatisfied. I'm bored. I want, I want something else to play with. And he's all, he's all frustrated and angry and everything because he's got no gratitude. And then another kid has a stick to play with and he entertains himself all day in the backyard running around and, you know, banging on trees and doing different things, and he comes in all happy and content with all the, because he's thankful for what he had. It's a completely different, a different way of looking at things. A person can, be, can truly enjoy a very simple meal if they receive it with thanksgiving more than a person who has a great feast and doesn't have any gratitude for it. They'll just be like, oh, I wonder why that didn't have enough salt on it, or what, you know, something, something's going to be wrong with it. Sexual relations, when used properly in marriage, make you grateful. You're not always asking for more because you thank God for what He's given you. You're using the thing the way God intended, and you're happy with it. It brings satisfaction instead of emptiness. You praise God because of His goodness to you. You receive what He has given you with thanksgiving instead of craving what he has not given you. You know how that can be with, with eating. If you, if you eat something and you're not satisfied with it and you always want to have more to get, to get the satisfaction that you were trying to get, but if you receive it gratefully, you're happy with it. It's good. So I call you to embrace God's way uh, concerning chastity. Because we're fallen, it is natural for us in our corruption to be absorbed with ourselves like Amnon was. To live as if we're the only one that matters, as if it's all about me, as if God and others are not really quite real, as if our own passions and desires are the big thing, the thing that we live around, that we shape everything around, not the passions, desires, or interests of other people or the concerns of other people, as if God and others are there just to satisfy me. And if they don't, then they're failing, and we feel that we're warranted to be resentful because of the disappointment that we have received. We didn't get what we wanted, and that's the most important thing. Apart from God's grace, you are that shriveled up soul. Every single one of us, apart from God's grace, is a soul that becomes more and more shriveled. That tiny little package of dense selfishness that doesn't reach out beyond itself. God made you to live for others, but you're so warped with your own desires that you can't see past yourself and your desires. You spend all your time thinking about yourself and living for yourself. It may be 
through other ways of self-indulgence, other than uh, sex, of course, that you are like that. Maybe entertainment or listening to stories or, or gaming or shopping or drinking or even something like worrying or sulking. That becomes a self-absorbed exercise that, that you're involved in. But our attitude about sex is a clear indicator that our lives are about ourselves. Others are there to give us pleasure, but we are not there to love them and care for them as human beings. And worse than that, we're not there to give glory and honor to God when we're in this situation. We're looking for, what we're looking for is to satisfy our own lusts. People exist for us. Many of us may be ashamed to live this selfishness out, you know, fully in the open. Like we don't go all out like Amnon did. Many keep it in their hearts. It stays within the realm of fantasy. But lust is the dominant theme of their life all the same. It is their way of life. The person teeming with lust looks upon others as existing for their pleasure, even though they may not outwardly go and rape someone like Amnon did. Surely this strikes at all of us unless we're completely blind to our own sins. We can see that there is too much of this in us. God graciously wakes sinners up to see what they really are. <clears throat> do, you, do not resist the Holy Spirit if He is revealing sin to you in your life. It's good and healthy to see that you need to make some changes. So what can you do? Well, you can repent and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and new life. He lived life for the glory of God. It was his desire to please his father, first of all, and then he lived for others in a way that pleased the father. He considered our needs, we're told in Philippians, to be more important than his own needs. He regarded others as more important than himself. He saw us as real people with real needs, and he gave himself to us in love and compassion. He is the firstborn, the Bible tells us, of a new creation, a new creation of human beings, people that had not been before. He is the beginning of people who are different than shriveled up souls with soul-shrinking lust. He calls us to enter into His kingdom, to come to Him in faith, believing that He will save us. Believing that even though we are so self-absorbed that if we come to him to be part of his kingdom, God will accept us as if we were just like Jesus. And believing that God will pardon us because of Jesus in his outreaching love because he has been punished for our sins in his outreaching love. So that we who are unfit to live with God, unfit to live in his world when it is renewed, are fully forgiven and fully accepted by Christ. That's the good news. And besides all that, that's not all. He also promises when we come to Him and put ourselves into His care for salvation, He promises that He will work in us and renew and transform our minds and our lives and make us into new creations, new creatures. So in Him... In this righteous kingdom that he came to establish, we will be in him, in that kingdom, being transformed that we might actually start more and more 
to regard other people as real and important and to regard God as real and as the most important one of all. And that we might actually live for God and others, that we might expand from shriveled up tiny souls to become large souls that see outside of self. Come to Jesus and he will help you to see how vile it is to be small-souled, to be so full of sinful lusts that you look at others as objects of your pleasure. That's what I mean when I say that he will transform your mind. He will transform it to be conformed to his own mind. He will enable you to start living for others. And oddly, when you do, joy will flood your soul. We think that the joy will come from getting what we want, satisfying our desires, but it's actually the opposite. You die to self, and then you learn what it really means to be joyful and happy. By losing your life, you find your life. That's how it works with God. There will always be much room for improvement, as long as we're in this world, till we get to glory. But rather than our souls shriveling up more and more with more and more selfish desires that they will do if we feed our lusts, whether for sex or comfort or entertainment or security or achievement or whatever it may be, in Christ, we will become larger and larger in our souls. And both God and our neighbors will become alive and real in our eyes. They will become more real in our eyes. We will have more, much more to live for than our own little selfish desires. We will begin to live expansively, Our soul will expand and grow to be able to reach out to other people. Please stand and let's call in the name of the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how I pray, Lord, that you would help us. When we we hear these things, we see Amnon and Lord, we see how he was so very shriveled up and so so much disregarded his sister Tamar. And Father, we, we see too much of our, that in our own soul. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. We really often don't believe that, that if we do turn to Christ and if we do yield to him and give over to him in this matter, that we will find real joy and satisfaction in him. Please help us, Lord. Please deliver us from from our selfish ways and and turn our hearts to Christ. Turn us to Him. And we pray, Lord, that You would give us the mind of Christ, that the mind that was in Christ Jesus would be in us, that we would consider the interests of others more important than our own interests, that we would esteem others more highly than we esteem ourselves. We know that the world actually teaches us that we should esteem ourselves and that we should esteem ourselves more highly, but you teach us that we should esteem others more highly. So I pray that you would help us, O Lord. Help us not to believe the lie of the world that is opposite to what your word teaches. We pray that we would see the way that our society has gone, that there is much loneliness, there is much isolation, there is much separation, there is much hatred, there is much disregard of others. Father, we see that too much in the church as well. Sometimes we can even be disregarding of others because of a, an improper kind of a piety that we embrace that, that isolates us in a wrong way from other people in the name of coming to you. Think about those that you know, go away from everyone to, to be with God or something and, 
And, and we know that there can be a tendency to maybe be someone who is very zealous about doing the things of God like the Pharisees were, but they become absorbed in themselves doing that and also disregard other people. No, Lord, it is not the Pharisees that we want to be like, nor is it like the, the libertines or the, um, the, the tax collectors and what, whatnot, but it, the one that we want to be like is Jesus Christ. We want to be like him. And so we pray that you would draw us to Christ and that we would be found in him, Lord. Truly, we need his righteousness in order to be accepted by you, but we also need his grace to work in us by his spirit with the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit that we may be changed, that our minds might be renewed and that our lives might be conformed to his way, to his law. So, Lord, our eyes are turned to you we thank you that you are such a gracious Savior and that you receive sinners and that anyone that comes to you, you will not cast out. So, Father, here we are in our weakness, saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and re- deliver me from my own way that I might walk in yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the blessing of the Lord. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of those who love our Lord Jesus Christ sincerely. Amen.